Good morning, everybody. I think there's still a few more that are probably going to filter in. But uh, glad for everybody's here. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I'm here. All right. This is the uh, third lesson. Oh, well, it's on the third chapter in the book of Colossians. Now, for a little bit of... Uh, I wasn't here last week, so I don't know exactly what all was covered in that, but give a little bit of context so we can kind of have our minds, uh, you know, kind of an idea of the, the city and maybe the times, and it might help speak to what Paul's dealing with in some of this. Uh, Colossae was a city in Phrygia in the Roman province of Asia, which is part, or part of modern-day Turkey, about 100 miles east of Ephesus in the region of the seven churches that are recorded in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. The city lay alongside the Lycus River, not far from where it flowed into the Meander River. The Lycus Valley narrowed at Colossae to a width of about two miles, and Mount Cadmus rode 8,000 feet above the city. Colossae was a thriving city in the 5th century B.C. when the Persian king Xerxes marched through the region. The city was situated at the junction of the main north-south-east-west trade routes. By Paul's day, however, the main road had been rerouted through nearby Laodicea, which lay to the north, thus bypassing Colossae and leading to its decline and the rise of the neighboring cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. The church at Colossae began during Paul's three-year ministry at Ephesus, recorded in Acts chapter 19. Its founder was not Paul, who had never been there, as recorded in Colossians 2 and 1, but Epaphras. Epaphras is mentioned three times in the New Testament, twice in Colossians and once in, according to some of you, I'm going to say this wrong, Philemon. I've heard people say it different ways. That's the way I say it. <laughs> that, that didn't mean nothing, by the way. He was a believer in Christ who served with the Apostle Paul, who referred to him as a fellow servant, a faithful minister, and servant of Christ Jesus. His name and Paul's comments in Colossians 4 and 11, which will come later, indicates that Epaphras was a Gentile. He also, we also surmise that he was from Colossae in Asia Minor, since his name appears in the letter to the church first, to the church there. And Paul says that he is one of you in Colossians 4 and 12, according to Paul, writing during the first Roman imprisonment, Epaphras was the one who shared the gospel with the Colossians and possibly started the church there. Paul speaks of the day that you heard, and he's in reference to the gospel, 
and reminds them that you learned it from Epaphras in Colossians 1, 6, and 7. Epaphras traveled to Rome to visit Paul, informing Paul about the Colossians' love and spirit, but also of the many issues which were, had crept in and were having influence in Colossae. Now we can go on to the, that was just for a little bit of reference so that you may have a little better idea, a little insight into why Paul is going to reference some of the things that he will. The lesson, the name is all in him. <clears throat> Part three. It does little good if Christians declare the truth, but don't demonstrate it. There should be a direct correlation between belief and behavior. We are to have new life now. Life is what you are alive to. And what makes you come alive. And our life is in Christ Jesus. Verse 1. If you then be risen in Christ, or with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. We see there, he says, if you be risen with Christ, then we should act like we are. That should be an identifying marker. <clears throat> and uh, the right hand, <coughs> excuse me, when you see that, and it's found throughout Scripture, the right hand, in this case, he sitteth down the right hand of God. A figurative expression denoting God's preeminence. It's used when God is said to have done something with his right hand. In effect, according to Hebrew idiom, by his own power. Arms carried in the right hand and used for attack as the sword, the spear. Those carried on the left hand, however, for the purpose of defense is the shield. Exodus chapter 15 and 6. Thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. I remember my, my wife's talking about the right hand. Her dad grew up in a Catholic school. And they set a lot of store by the right hand just by the expression, by the idea of it. And the nuns there, they, uh, how should you say it, they expressed to him painfully that he shouldn't use his left hand. So when he grew up, he did everything was right. He could still, I believe, write with his right hand. But he, just out of habit, he did most things with his with his right hand instead of his left. I meant that he could still write with his left hand, but anyway. Verse 2. <laughs> Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. That is, I guess you could say, a habitual act. Because we live in a culture that is geared towards self-indulgence. 
It's all what I want. And if you can't afford it, we can make a way for you to get it right now. I know in, uh, when I read that, I thought of, oh, up here it referenced the first three books of the book of Revelation. And uh, in there, Jesus mentions twice, one, the church at Ephesus, he commended them for not embracing the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And another church, he didn't talk so highly of them about it because they did embrace it. But anyway, I read about that and my mind went to, who are the Nicolaitans? Why would God go to such great lengths to say, I hate that doctrine? Now, he didn't say he hated the people. I hate the doctrine. And history tells us there's a lot, there's several different ideas on who the Nicolaitans were and you can there's three or four different ideas but basically the one that makes the most sense that I can find is that they were a people of excess whatever I feel is what I want to do and and that's that and they did have a they mixed God in with, uh, with some of their ideas and their thoughts, but it really centered around them. So set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Verse 3, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. The old man is dead through, repent, through repentance. Now that your life is hid, that word means my old life is concealed. When you search out that word used for hid, it is enveloped. So that when, don't you, you remember your living epistles? seen and read of all men. All the world sees should be Christ-like behavior. If I actually am, if my life is hid in Him. Galatians 2, 20 and 21, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. Meaning, I'm still alive, I'm still walking, still in the flesh. But even though, but my identity is hid in Him, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, since I'm still here, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And that speaks to, there's a reason why he wrote that that will come into play shortly. Some of the things that were happening at Colossae. So grace through faith saves you. And that's what he is 
trying to convey. And the first three verses of this chapter, Paul isn't urging us to deny the harsh realities of life. He is simply reminding us of where our focus should be. When our eyes, eyes are on Christ, we see this life from a different perspective. We realize there is hope when everything seems dark and hopeless. As we look with an eternal perspective, the struggles of whether it be recovery, family issues, or just daily life, they don't disappear, rather they are just seen in the proper light. They no longer have the terrifying power that they once did. When we keep our eyes on Christ and His promises for help, no obstacle is too great for us to overcome. Verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. There again. My life, my identity is in Him. Verse 5, mortify. Or put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. And then it lists fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil, big word, desires. I hate that word. I sat at the table the other night trying to figure out that word. I hate that word. Desires, what we'll say. Colossians, here's the amplified version. So kill, deaden, deprive of power, the evil desire lurking in your members, those animal impulses and all that is earthly in you that is employed in sin, sexual vice, impurity, sensual appetites, unholy desires, and all greed and covetousness. For that is idolatry. The defying of self and other created things instead of God. Deifying, I'm sorry. So, why, why is that? And, and again, a lot of this stuff's going on to these people he's writing this letter to. And it speaks to our lives. What do these things do in our lives? I mean, other than the obvious. It gives the enemy ammunition to use against you. So whenever you do try to turn, he's always there reminding you. The bringing of our flesh into subjection. We hear a lot about charity through the Scripture. Why is there so much about charity? Is it that God wants you to continually have nothing and give everything you have away? No. The same reason why God is not your sacrifice all through the Scripture. It didn't increase Him. It increased you. Because when you, you won't sacrifice and you won't have charity if you're not submitted. 
And submission is going to very shortly become a big part of this chapter. We went to Mary's church and Owen's last weekend, and there was a, a young woman there. She goes there. She does it. Uh, she calls herself a teacher. I'd call her a preacher because she preached a message that was as good as, I mean, I, I had no, I've known her, but I had no idea that this woman preached. And she preached about uh, David and Goliath. I thought, oh, okay. David and Goliath. Check out, and y'all wake me up when she's done. But if we, if we can have that attitude, I will. I'll say it. Y'all go ahead. I know y'all don't. I do. Anyway, it wasn't a rock and a sling that killed Goliath. You see, Goliath did not want to kill the whole nation of Israel. He never threatened that. He wanted to kill one man. And in so doing, he would enslave. He said, you will serve us. So it wasn't a rock and a sling that kept the people from bondage. It was the submission and consecration of one young man. So why should we consider these things to be so important? You know, the, the scripture that everybody speaks on, I got to hurry. Oh, never mind. Forget all that. I ain't going to say none of this. <laughs> We're like the bandit and the snowman. We got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I gotta do some trimming. Sins. We tend to focus on the sins. All these big bad things. These uh, things nobody gives any argument about as being wrong. But then he lists more. Put off, three, verse 8 and 10, put off and put on. Refers to a person changing their clothes, exchanging sin's grave clothes for resurrection robes of righteousness. 3, 8, 9, anger is an attitude of resentment. Wrath, a sudden outburst. Malice is an attitude of ill will toward another. Blasphemy is speech that tears down another. In my mind, I always thought blasphemy meant I was going to say something real bad about God. Or I was going to challenge whether He was God or something like that. But blasphemy is speech that tears down another. You can blaspheme humans, not just God. Filthy communication is pretty obvious, coarse and fleshly talk. Lying. A misrepresent well now here's one way. A misrepresentation of the truth, even if the words are technically correct. If I imply or I give the connotation that people pick up and run with, technically that can be a lie. 
Mm, I'm sorry, I am. Love never gives up. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love cares more for others than for itself. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Jealousy. Love doesn't strut. Doesn't have a swelled head. Doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first. Remember the Nicolaitans. God hates that. All that goes along with that and what it produces. Doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. I don't justify myself because of what somebody else did or is doing. Doesn't revel when others grovel. Doesn't, by that, it doesn't, love doesn't relish when somebody else says they're wrong. Or if somebody else comes to you, and this is a big thing in recovery, to make amends. We always talk about us going making amends to people, but what if somebody comes to you? What's your attitude going to be? It doesn't take pleasure, or it takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. It puts up with anything. Trust God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back, but keeps on going to the end. 3.15, let peace rule or umpire in your hearts. And if it is really the peace of God, you will have the peace, you will have peace with God's family one body and you will have praise on your lips or you will be thankful 316 let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admoni- and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father. Now at 17, this chapter is kind of laid out in two parts. The mood changes. He leaves the general addressing of kind of the cultural collective issues and he moves into the home life hmm look at that one can y'all see that no I can see it I'll read this real quick I got a minute although Colossae's population was mainly Gentile there was a large Jewish settlement dating from the days of Antiochus, the great. 
Colossae's mixed population of Jews and Gentiles manifested itself both in the composition of the church and in the heresy that plagued it, which contained elements of both Jewish legalism and pagan mysticism. Now those, that's a combination. That's from one side, one extreme to the other. Does that resemble the world that we live in? Several years after the Colossian church was founded, a dangerous heresy arose to threaten it. One not identified with any particular historical system. And that means that when these groups came together, something different came about that was not seen that Paul had to address. It contained elements of what later became known as Gnosticism. That God is good, but matter is evil. That Jesus Christ was merely one of a series of emanations descending from God and being less than God. A belief that led them to deny His true humanity. And that a secret higher knowledge above Scripture was necessary there's a group that believes that. For enlightenment and salvation. The Colossian heresy also embraced aspects of Jewish legalism, the necessity of circumcision for salvation, which was a holdover from Old Testament law, observance of the ceremonial rituals of the Old Testament, such as dietary laws, festivals, Sabbaths. There's a lot of people today that jump up and down over the Sabbath. What day is it? And hold great store on that. But And rigid... Here's another big word. Asceticism. Now, said it as good as you understand it. It also called for the worship of angels and mystical experience. Epaphras was so concerned about this heresy that he made the long journey from Colossae to Rome where Paul was held prisoner. The letter to Colossians was written from prison in Rome, sometime between A.D. 60 and 62, and is therefore referred to as a prison epistle, along with Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. It may have been composed almost contemporaneously with Ephesians and initially sent with that epistle and Philemon by Tychicus, if that's right. For discussion, or that's not important, not at this time. He wrote this letter to warn the Colossians against the heresy they faced. Again, Colossians was written to deal with many problems in Colossae, of the many include the worshiping of angels, Asceticism, the keeping of parts of the Old Testament and ungodly living. Asceticism was a weird, it made no sense. They tried to emulate John the Baptist, which made no sense because he was the forerunner of Christ and Christ had come, so why are you emulating? It didn't make any sense. They took vows of celibacy, they would beat themselves. And neither one of those make any sense. 
Living in the desert doesn't lead souls to repentance. Matter of fact, God called Moses out of the desert. Now here we get to the good one. Colossians 3 and 18. <laughs> yeah. You got a room open? Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Now, had he not put those few words on the end of that, men everywhere could stick their chest out and reach for the big piece of chicken. <laughs> but whenever you see a scripture just stick up by itself, you need to start looking because Scripture explains Scripture. You don't have standalone Scriptures that fly in the face of... And as we already learned, Ephesians and Colossians were written at the same time in the same jail cell by the same man. So they were, And they weren't very far apart. 100 miles, Colossians, Colossae was 100 miles east of Ephesus. So they were having the same issues largely because they were in the same region. So Ephesians 5 speaks in more depth to the same thing. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. There were extramarital. There was a lot of weird stuff going on. Not unlike today. As unto the Lord. The same language. For the husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church. What does that mean? Well, the husband is actually a wife. <laughs> if you're a member of the bride of Christ. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so that the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Church is subject unto Christ. Husband, member of the church, which is the bride. Husbands, love your wives. Here again, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church or bride, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that this should be holy and without blemish. Now this epistle by most folks is known as an epistle that shows forth the mighty God in Christ. And I don't think Anybody in here is going to argue that. So I thought, Lord, what? It can't be what you're wanting me to do here. So what do the people need? What are the needs of the people? What is the world we're living in? What are we dealing with? How does this letter translate to our lives in today's world? Paul was giving instructions for a godly home. He shifted from a collective issues to individual home issues because 
largely until you get that straight, you can forget about all this other. Husbands, and I know it starts with wives, but this scripture is really more about you than it is about your wife. All through Scripture, the Lord, when the children of Israel were coming through the wilderness and they were encountering all these different people, tribes, whatever you want to call them, nations, they had their own gods. Many of them were farmers, so they worshipped gods of fertility. Baal was one. There was a bunch. Most of them variations of the same thing. And what God told them was, don't take part in this. To wit, Scripture says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. That goes back to this having a church or a bride without spot or wrinkle. Not an adulterous bride. That's what He likened His people to Whenever they, to use a little coarse language, he called it going off a whoring. Now, we're all grown. We've all got kids. Anybody going to turn red and run out of the room? That's what the Scripture called it. Adulterous. So wives are not a doormat. They're not second-class citizens. And that doesn't mean that just because you're a wife, you've got to go along with everything your husband's doing if he's not godly. Remember, as unto the Lord. Now, your wife should not be any more submitted to you than you are to God. That's why I said that, men, this is really more about you than it is your wives. Why are so many wives the only ones that come to church? Why are so many wives the ones that come up for prayer? Where's the submission amongst the men? Where are you? You're supposed to be the priest of your home, according to the Scripture. Some men don't want a woman to preach, but they don't mind her running the house. What's up with that? I don't get that. I mean, does God want men to be the preachers to carry the Word? I think so, but when you see a woman do it, it's because a man wouldn't. So where are you, men? Are you submitted? Are you faithful to God? Or are you an adulteress? That's what this Scripture's saying. They must have listened in Ephesus because in Revelation 2, as I said before, they were commended for rejecting the Nicolaitan doctrine. <clears throat> There's some instructions about children here. Don't provoke your children to wrath. Hebrews 12 and 8. God corrects. He chastens those sons He's going to receive. According to this, if you're too harsh, 
Your children will lose faith. They'll leave. Do you? There's a scripture that says, part of the scripture says you have not because you ask not. And the rest of the scripture says you have not because your motives are all wrong. Are you heavy-handed or are you correcting in love? Because if sometimes God corrected us the way we do our kids, he would smash us. But he doesn't do that. See, these are, Paul's dealing with some, and from afar, he's not getting to stand in front of these people and telling this, he's writing them a note, writing them a letter. Fathers, we always talk about this big revival amongst whoever. But why should we rely on women to do all the work? Are you so busy? That's one thing he said about not getting so caught up in the things of this world. Do you have to have so many toys that you are bound to work all the time to try to pay for them? Just putting that out there. I don't have a lot of stuff because I don't want to pay for it. <laughs> I'm cheap. Thrifty. <laughs> it's a better word. In 1 Samuel 15, 30 through 31, and I didn't give Paul these, so the screen's going to be blank. That's the only place that I could find that Saul worshipped the Lord. And that was when he got caught standing there looking stupid, and it was just to save face. He made a deal with Samuel that, you know, don't leave me. That's the only place I could find. Maybe there is another place. I couldn't find it. What does that mean? What's that got to do with anything? Later on, in 2 Samuel 6, 14 through 16, we find that it's been talked about forever. Where David is ushering in the ark. And he's dancing and shouting in front of it, coming down the street. We've heard the story told over and over if you've been around church much. But where was his wife? She was standing in the house looking out the window, thinking, look at this idiot. I'm married to this moron. That's what it says. Michael despised David because he was outwardly worshiping. Where did she learn that? She never saw her father worship. She never heard. That's, that's, that goes back to Elisha. You know the old story where the she bears come out and lay waste to all the little kids and, and says those were not all little kids. Those were, some of them were little and history says some of them were as old as 20 years old. Making fun of him, calling him old bald head. That's what the Bible says. Where did they learn that? He was despised. Those, those, his, some historical references say that those children were sons of the prophets. 
sons of the sons. Those there was big there were prophet schools, Bible schools, what we would they weren't Bible schools, but the equivalent for training. But they didn't like Elisha. So where did they learn this? They learned it at home. Fathers, are you submitted? You, I mean, you have to answer that in yourself. Am I submitted to God and what do I expect? Possibly your wife's submission is a mirror of yours. That's not where I wanted to go with that, but that's where we wound up. Because that's what the Bible says. So, if we are to be what God wants us to be, we've got to take a long, hard look. This Bible, it's not me. It's what the Scripture says. It's almost time. It's close enough. Lord, thank you, God. We ask that you help us, that you look inside of us, God, and you open our understanding. Help us to take an inventory of ourselves. If we truly want to be the church and faithful and true bride of Christ, help us, Lord, to look over ourselves. Bless our homes. Bring us together with our wives and our children so there's no contention, no division, but that we are operating as one, of one accord in our homes. And that is when we will be able to see a harvest. And this is all to your glory, Lord. Open our understanding and our hearts so that we so that you can take glory in the outcome, the harvest that is coming. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You have a few minutes here. Take advantage of it.